This section will cover Islam as an apocalyptic movement. To say that, that Islam is an apocalyptic movement, is a rather controversial statement. But it is my contention that apocalypse and the apocalyptic tendency can be traced all the way back to the birth moment of Islam. Um, Muhammad and his first revelations are have the quality of, a, of extreme repentance. They call for a cataclysmic uh, event that is due to happen uh, to the world that must be preluded by repentance on the part of humanity. First of all, of the Arabs, then eventually as uh, Muhammad's uh, scope uh, became much larger of all of humanity. I think that uh, Patricia Crone was accurate when she called Muhammad a doomsday prophet. Uh, his, uh, his pronouncements in the early sections of the Quran have that, uh, that immediate, absolute quality, the world is about to end. Now, what on earth are the reasons why Muhammad might come to that conclusion? I'd like to point out at least five that would give, uh, or possibly could give, a, a, a movement, an apocalyptic sense at this particular time. The first one has to do with something that cannot be denied in history, and that is the long war that happened between uh, the Byzantine Empire and the Sasanian Empire. This war between 602 and 628, during almost the entire time that Muhammad uh, has his ministry. Uh, this is one of the, the great pointless wars of history where both uh, empires managed to completely destroy each other uh, and managed to do, moreover, the things that, were, that desecrated each other's sanctities to an extreme level. The Persians uh, in 614 managed to take over the city of Jerusalem where they looted it, burned it, and took the Holy Cross, uh, the, the fragment of the true, true cross, uh, hostage. At a later time, the, uh, the, the Byzantine Empire uh, was able to make a comeback, and the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius was able to take over a number of the, of the holy fire temples of the Zoroastrians, each one of which he desecrated uh, and destroyed in their turn. So both empires at the end, towards uh, 628, uh, were completely, completely exhausted. <clears throat> One of the cataclysmic aspects of the end of the world, as it's usually portrayed, is that fact that it will be consumed with war. And all around, all around, as Muhammad was preaching, was essentially a warlike situation. Another factor to take into account uh, would be the appearance of the bubonic plague. Uh, bubonic plague basically is first uh, documented from the 540s. Uh, approximately uh, 60 to 70 years before the prophet uh, began his activities and uh, began to harvest off large numbers of people really throughout the Middle East. A third factor to take into account is a change in climate. Uh, it's very interesting to note that one of the very largest documentable uh, volcanic explosions that has ever happened uh, in the time of recorded history happened just a few years before the time of the prophet in Indonesia. And although one cannot say absolutely 
one strongly feels after reading the Quran that uh, that some of the changes that are described in the climate, uh, some of the uh, differing colors and so forth, the, the the dramatic nature of the climate may have been very strongly influenced by the uh, by the volcanic ash that was uh, spewed out by this particular volcanic explosion. Another natural feature that one should take into account is the fact that Halley's Comet passed by uh, in 610, which is traditionally the first year that the prophet uh, started uh, giving out his revelations. And there are mentions of various different uh, comets or stars falling and so forth. We don't know about other different meteorite activities. Perhaps there were. There's no record of them. But uh, there may very well have been meteors that were falling uh, at that particular time. Certainly Saudi Arabia is known for uh, being an attractant for, for meteors in later times. But even more than all of those things together was the sense that something should happen right at that particular time. And why should that be? But that that particular century was one that was seven centuries after the time of Jesus. This holy uh, number of years that had elipsed uh, since the time of, uh, uh, of Jesus brought people to thinking that something needed to happen. Something fundamental needed to happen that, that would change uh, at that particular time. And apocalyptic expectations that we have from uh, both Jews and Christians at that time indicate that this was not a feeling that was solely confined to the Arabian Peninsula. Byzantines felt it. Jews felt it. There were sometimes uh, attempts at forcible conversion of the Jews. Uh, sometimes Jews even voluntarily apparently converted. Um, and uh, there was familiarity even uh, as far away as North Africa that a prophet had appeared in Arabia, uh, although uh, his message was not accepted at that early date. So it's my strong feeling that after reading the Quran, one does have an actual, an apocalyptic movement uh, in Mecca at that very early stage, that uh, it has all the hallmarks of an apocalyptic movement. We know that early mosques were not built out of, uh, out of stone deliberately, that they were usually built out of uh, very rude structures, uh, usually just uh, leaves and sometimes wood structures, uh, because there was no point in building permanent structures. The world was about ready to end. So the tradition that goes, build them like a booth, like a, like a booth like the booth of Moses. In other words, like a, like a, a temporary shack not anything like the monumental mosques that we find in later times, indicates that the early Muslims were not interested in leaving their mark upon the world. They were interested in transitioning into the next world. Now, on a regular basis during that first hundred years of Islam, we find different messianic or apocalyptic movements that would rise and would try and take power on the basis of the idea that the end of the world was uh, coming at a particular time. These are very closely tied to, to the early adoption of the Hijri calendar, which can be dated back even into around 30 years after the death of the prophet. 
that acceptance of a new calendar, of an entirely new way of, uh, of dating things, indicates that, that people were counting on a clock all the way down to probably what was, uh, what was intended to be the end of the world at the year 100 or 718. Now, many of the Muslim conquests can be tied to uh, these various different timelines, closely, uh, closely uh, connected with that 100 and then later on 200-year uh, timeline. Um, there was uh, the sense that, uh, and this is reflected inside the, uh, inside the Hadith literature, that God would not have any use for anybody who was born after the year 100. There would be no point in it. And so it's not surprising to find that the final push that the Muslims made for Constantinople was actually in that particular year. But that conquest failed. That conquest failed. And probably one of the most interesting things that happens to an apocalyptic movement is when a conquest or when a prediction fails. And it's really from that failure that we start to begin to see the, a, a change in Islam. A change that moves away from the, uh, the, the temporary into the permanent. It's really from that time that we begin to see strong, large, monumental buildings being built on a continual basis. Mosques change. They no longer are the rude shacks that are described by uh, Bishop Arnulf. Uh, as he visits uh, the, uh, the the Holy Mount, uh, the the Temple in Jerusalem, uh, the what is today the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of El Aqsa, and he describes the Mosque of El Aqsa as a, a, as a bunch of rude planks that have been placed sort of board like over stones. In other words, there was absolutely no attempt whatsoever to build what we consider to be one of the earliest mosques in, uh, in, uh, in, in Islam as being something of a monumental building. And this was not for lack of money. The Muslims had all sorts of money and resources and slaves and ability to build things and architects that were willing to build them. We know that from other different sources. And so I think that it was very important for them to, at that particular time, to make sure that their, that their mosques and their holy locations actually were not monumental. That changes after the year 100, after the failure of the year 100, and after the inability of the Muslims to be able to complete that conquest, and that feeling, well, you know, God didn't show up. And so what are we supposed to do? So Islam morphs. And from that morphing, then we find, uh, we find both an imperial apocalyptic as well as an anti-imperial apocalyptic. The imperial apocalyptic is one that emphasizes uh, the monumental. These are people who uh, their idea of the messianic state is that it is a fact. Who is the Messiah? Well, the ruler is the Messiah. What is he trying to do? He's trying to bring in the idealized state. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Umayyad rulers actually took on messianic titles, but they had a sense of realized eschatology. In other words, they were actually bringing in the, Isla uh, the Islamic messianic state. It wasn't something that one had to protest against. They wanted to have the characteristics of the Islamic state. What were those characteristics? 
peace and plenty, justice, money for everybody, conquest, Islam, Arabic, speaking in Arabic, emphasizing the Arabic culture, emphasizing its, uh, its poetry, its accomplishments, and so forth. There were all sorts of different, uh, uh, different characteristics that would, uh, that would characterize an idealized messianic state. So these began to appear in that imperial type of discourse of apocalyptic. On the other side, there began to develop an anti-imperial apocalyptic. And that placed the, the Umayyads at a severe disadvantage because they could be, uh, they could be p- uh, painted as being tyrants, as being anti-Muslim tyrants. And that was a charge that they were not easy, it was not easy for them to refute because one should remember that they were descended from people who primarily opposed the Prophet Muhammad during his lifetime. <clears throat> and so their uh, inheritance of the Muslim empire was, for most Muslims, something of a bad joke. So this anti-imperial apocalyptic would posit that there would be some sort of an idealized revolt that would be God-inspired and that would be led by a figure, a messianic figure called the Mahdi. Now, in the last section, we talked about the actual apocalyptic predictions that are associated with that. And uh, this section, we will talk about the, the, how those apocalyptic predictions were uh, manifest through the messianic movements of the Abbasids. Um, the Abbasids were a family uh, closely related to the prophet, descended from his uncle Abbas, who had begun a series of very sophisticated propaganda uh, missions throughout the middle of the 700s, culminating in 742 in the su- successful establishment of their uh, of their first state, which managed to defeat the Umayyads by 747, and then proclaim uh, the Abbasids as the caliphs uh, during that selfsame year. Now, the basis for the Abbasids' success was their ability to marshal all of the opponents of the Umayyads behind a, a single slogan that was sufficiently ambiguous that everybody could subscribe to it and sufficiently secret that nobody really knew who was behind it. And that one was that everyone should follow the one who is accepted from the family of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, the Prophet Muhammad's family was uh, the choice of ruler for the Shiites. It also, by default, was the choice of ruler for, uh, for many other different Muslims who weren't Shiites, who were seeking for some type of acceptable ruler that they could uh, call their own. The Abbasids, uh, through a brilliant manipulation, managed to gather these disparate groups together, indoctrinate them with the Abbasid propaganda, and then at the moment of victory, then produce their imam, who was named a Safah, uh, and place him in the caliphate. Now, the Abbasids, the early Abbasids were able after that for their first seven rulers, and again, the number seven there cannot be a coincidence, uh, to take various different messianic titles. 
it's very difficult to understand what the messianic function of a safah is. Um, the, the word itself is obscure. It, it usually means a butcher. Um, and it's not impossible that that was true of a safah, uh, since he did butcher a lot of people. But uh, its messianic uh, function is still rather obscure. So, but uh, the second Abbasid ruler, and the one who really founded the dynasty, al-Mansur, uh, who ruled between sorry, 754 and 775, um, was uh, taking his, uh, his messianic functions actually from a South Arabian uh, title. And this highlights a fact that is oftentimes obscured uh, when discussing about the Mahdi, is that uh, the Mahdi, the title of the Mahdi, is taken from a wide range of messianic titles that were available at that particular time. Many of those titles were of a regional, tribal, or local nature, that, uh, uh, and uh, taking them highlighted one's allegiance or one's at least sympathy to a given group uh, that, uh, that could be utilized. Um, several other ones that are important uh, that we will discuss at later times, uh, for example, Al-Yamani, uh, who is a, uh, a, a messianic figure that's closely associated with, uh, with Yemen, as his name uh, uh, indicates, then uh, the figure known as Al-Kahtani, who's usually said to be a brother or a cousin of the Mahdi, uh, who again is very closely associated with the aspirations of the Kahtan, a coalition of tribes, and Al-Mansur, which was known as a messianic uh, title already prior prior to the rise of Islam. Now, Mansur made things uh, pretty clear by naming his own son al-Mahdi. And so the messianic functions of the early early Abbasid caliphs are absolutely crystal clear. Nonetheless, they faced a wide range of uh, messianic uh, revolts, Um, probably most especially that of Muhammad al-Nafsa Zakiyah, Muhammad the pure soul, uh, in 762, who was a descendant of the of the Prophet Muhammad's eldest grandson Al Hassan, and who represented uh, the uh, the aspirations of the people of Medina, who had been largely side uh, sidelined by the appearance of the Abbasids. The revolt was a complete failure. Uh, Muhammad and Nafsa Zakiyah did not uh, succeed in gaining any particular level of support, other than in the town of Medina. Uh, and was ultimately butchered. But nonetheless, there were a wide range of, uh, of other claimants who would appear periodically, usually descended from the prophet's family, but sometimes uh, members of uh, uh, other families as well. Probably the best known and most important of those uh, was the figure of Abu Muslim. Uh, Abu Muslim uh, is a man whose uh, lineage, even to this day, is obscure. Um, but he was a slave who was sold to the Abbasids, and the Abbasids trained him and sent him to command their armies in the east. And he did brilliantly uh, and led the, led the Abbasids to victory, and by uh, 754 had grown to be sufficiently powerful that, uh, uh, that he had to be executed himself. And the story of his execution is one of those paradigmatic um, ones that's oftentimes used uh, in, um, 
uh, as an example of a man who's reached too high for his own uh, for his own good. Um, but Abu Muslim did not die with his ex- execution. Abu Muslim continued to be a messianic figure, and it was actually even worshipped as a deity uh, in Iran for centuries. Uh, and then makes a reappearance almost a, a thousand years after his death uh, as a, as another messianic figure in Iran, um, a very important uh, subsidiary figure. So Mahdi's uh, were a regular feature of Islamic history, and it's important to realize that there are probably at least 500, 600 Mahdi's that have appeared in various different places, in the Muslim world. Of those, probably at least uh, 250 can be documented. Others uh, were of a comparatively minor uh, nature and, and probably local and will probably never be known uh, fully. Um, another local figure was the Sufiani. Uh, in the previous section, we discussed uh, the issue of the Sufiani how he was uh, the idealized descendant of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, uh, who was the fifth caliph and who was known from uh, in Syria as being the exemplar of uh, the ideal ruler. And his time was the, was the best possible time for Syrian Muslims, uh, a time of conquest, a time of wealth, a time of generosity, a time of high culture. And so not surprisingly, the Sufyani is, uh, is seen as being uh, kind of the, 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 the Messiah figure of the Syrians. Um, really, uh, Sufyani appearances can be dated all the way into the 1600s. Um, there's at least 14 of them uh, that I've been able to collect uh, of different uh, figures who would appear, call themselves the Sufyani, uh, and then usually uh, be killed uh, almost immediately. Um, but a couple of them managed to survive for uh, a certain amount of time. Now, uh, much of the apocalyptic movement dating is connected with the uh, the cycles of the Hijri years. In other words, uh, at 100 years, at 200 years, at 300 years, at 400 years, are all loci for the appearance of various different uh, apocalyptic movements or tendencies. In the year 100, we find that push towards uh, Constantinople, the sense of failure that happened afterwards. In the year 200, we find a renewal of the Abbasid uh, apocalyptic uh, beliefs uh, in, the, in the form of uh, al-Ma'amun, who was uh, the eighth ruler of the, uh, of the Abbasids, who uh, proclaimed himself to, to start a new uh, kind of era of, um, of knowledge. Uh, he was very closely connected with, uh, with, the, uh, with, with the high cultural development of Baghdad, founding libraries, universities, and so forth, and uh, proclaimed it to be a messianic age. But beyond that, uh, the ulama also adopted that cyclicality of the year 100, 200, and 300. And they did so in the following manner. Uh, They took a a certain tradition that says, at the beginning of every hundred years, God will send a mujaddid, a renewer, 
who will renew the religion. Now, this figure of the Mujaddid is, uh, is not precisely messianic, but he does have some messianic qualities about him. Now, usually because he is, uh, he's a religious figure, he is uh, somebody who, uh, who will appear at that particular time, usually be associated with the ulama, and uh, bring about some sort of necessary change or reproof to the dominant discourse that is going on in the Muslim world at that particular time. Um, and so the Mujaddid tradition allows uh, for the possibility of radical renewal inside Islam. Those uh, particular uh, figures who do not want to make the, uh, the radical transition into, uh, into calling themselves the Mahdi will oftentimes prefer to take a lesser title such as the Mujaddid and say that they aren't actually uh, moving that far away from, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the norm in calling themselves Mahdi. They don't want to, to, to endanger the political uh, status quo in that way, but they would like to make some religious changes. So usually the Mujaddid's function is, uh, is confined to a religious change of some sort. Now, who the Mujaddids are is a vast question, and there are all sorts of different lists that uh, circulate among various different books and, uh, and documents. Usually uh, a given religious rite will associate themselves uh, with a given list uh, and won't sometimes be recognized by anyone else. But it's important for us to realize that that, that Mujaddid tradition does allow for kind of a secondary, lower-level uh, renewal factor to Islam that otherwise might not be uh, available. Um, at the year 400, uh, in uh, the early 1020s, uh, we find a very interesting figure who appears, uh, and that's the, the figure of the Fatimid Caliph uh, al-Hakim. Um, this is a figure who, uh, during his lifetime, was usually dismissed as being insane. He had uh, such absolute powers that he was able to convince large groups of people that he had some uh, divine qualities and actually spawned a whole new religion, the religion of the Druzes, uh, which today is prevalent uh, throughout uh, southern Lebanon, parts of Syria, and northern Israel. So this is a figure who eventually was assassinated. He was a profoundly misogynist and apparently managed to tick off his own sister, who probably had him murdered. Um, but at any rate, he, among other different things, he issued a proclamation that it was the year 400, and that the Jews and Christians had had 400 years to, uh, to repent and, uh, and become Muslims. They had not taken that, uh, that opportunity, and therefore he ordered their holy places to be destroyed. And among others, the ones that he had destroyed were the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is uh, an event that ultimately, when it got back to Europe, uh, uh, provoked uh, partially the, uh, the appearance of the Crusades. So it's very possible at this particular time for apocalyptic predictions and apocalyptic manifestations to sort of feed off of one another. There are numerous other 
different uh, apocalyptic movements that uh, that appear throughout the centuries. We're not going to uh, to deal with uh, all of them, uh, but one, the ones that are probably the most important for the the later Middle Ages are those that appeared around the Muslim year 1000, which fell in the Christian year 1591. And that's a very interesting year because you find uh, a number of different uh, conquests. Um, uh, things that are that are uh, that are leading up to that particular year. In the previous section, uh, I detailed uh, how uh, the figure of Jalaluddin Siyuti was commissioned uh, to write that um, that the world was not going to end in 1591, and as a matter of fact, he pushed that year back to um, uh, to 2076. Uh, saying that God had given the earth uh, another 500 years to uh, to repent. But uh, there's a series of conquests that happened at that particular year. One of those is a push north uh, that the Ottomans uh, were doing at that particular time towards, uh, towards Vienna. It's a very strong uh, move, apparently, to, uh, to try and, and finish off the conquest of Christian Europe. There's also a, a move by uh, by the Moroccan messianic dynasty of the Saadids uh, to conquer Black Africa. Uh, the famous raid on Timbuktu happens in 1590-91, uh, where the uh, the previously important uh, African city of Timbuktu is uh, is almost completely destroyed by the uh, by the Moroccans, uh, who are apparently trying to. Uh, to move beyond it down to uh, towards Black Africa to convert uh, the Black Africans to Islam. Uh, that self same time is also the time of the Ethiopian Jihad, uh, where the great uh, conqueror Ahmed Granye uh, overruns uh, the Ethiopian highlands. Uh, and uh, when you read the the account that has come down to us of the Futuh al Khabasha. Uh, the Ethiopian Jihad, uh, you realize that it's just suffused with apocalyptic predictions um, that the world is about to end and uh, therefore Ethiopia needs to be uh, conquered for Islam. As it happened, uh, the, uh, the Muslim conquerors there ran into the Portuguese and uh, they were butchered. Um, other messianic movements that happened at that selfsame time were uh, more peripheral to the Muslim world. Uh, the change of, uh, of Iran from being a Sunni stronghold into a Shiite stronghold, which was uh, closely associated with the rise of the, of the dynasty of the Safavids that uh, was messianic in its very nature. And additionally, uh, the, um, the, the important messianic movement of the Mahdavi the Mahdaviya uh, that appeared in uh, in India at that selfsame time, uh, led by a would-be Messiah. So that's only a small selection of the different types of messianic movements that were available uh, at that year 1000. So it's not surprising that during our own times we should expect, as the year as the Islamic year 1500 approaches, that uh, there should be more and more apocalyptic movements that will appear. Now, as we look uh, down through the centuries, uh, we see uh, at the Islamic year 1200, uh, in, the, uh, um, in the late 1700s, 
um, the appearance of the uh, of the West African uh, figure Shecho Samandan Fodio, who also starts off his particular ministry of reform and jihad uh, at that critical moment, where he says that he receives a vision from God and from uh, from uh, different uh, Sufi sheikhs and holy men that he needs to go out and fight uh, in the jihad uh, in order to purify what we today would call northern Nigeria. Um, in 1300, uh, which would, would have fallen in 1882, um, the, uh, the Muslim world was uh, to a large extent controlled by, uh, by uh, colonial figures, um, and so it's not surprising that uh, by that particular time, the messianic movements that were associated with that year were mostly of a, uh, a liberation uh, quality. Um, in Egypt, during that year, there was a major revolt that was associated with the figure of Arabi Pasha. This is a, a very interesting figure who... Um, uh, who sought to overthrow the British rule and to uh, and to establish a pattern of jihad against the, against the uh, colonial attackers? Um, and uh, although he ultimately failed, it uh, heralded an even stronger danger that the British had further to the south, which was the rise of the Sudanese Mahdi. The Sudanese Mahdi appeared uh, again as a as kind of a a reaction to the uh, to the attempt by the British to suppress the uh, the slave trade in the Sudan, uh, which unfortunately for the British was the major livelihood of most of the people, and so the the Sudanese Mahdi appeared in uh, in that self same year in 1882. And uh, he proclaimed himself. We have vast numbers of his uh, of his letters that have been edited over the years, and his communications. So we understand something of the ideology that this man held. Um, and he, over a period of the next uh, four years, managed to gain control over uh, most of the area which today we would call the Sudan, and establish uh, a messianic state. Now, as it happened, he died very shortly after his, the, his followers took over Khartoum in 1884. But his state continued under his successor until 1898. It was very closely characterized by, uh, by a type of a messianic expansionism. Um, and uh, several different times, uh, the, the, uh, the Mahdist state in, in the Sudan tried to actually invade uh, Egypt, uh, saying that the Egyptians should accept the Mahdi, uh, and uh, instead they rejected him. So, 1300 was uh, was very much a locus for uh, for the appearance of apocalyptic predictions. Um, another figure, another important figure that uh, that appeared during that time was uh, the uh, the figure of Ghulam Ahmad, who. Uh, appeared in India. Um, this was a, a, an Indian Muslim who was convinced that he was actually the Mahdi and a Majadid and a reincarnation of Jesus. 
Um, he had uh, he had participated in extensive polemic with Christian missionaries and had been convinced that mainstream Muslims were not dealing effectively with Christian missionaries. And so it's commonly believed that one of the reasons why he, why he proclaimed himself to be a reincarnation of Jesus was to, as it were, repossess Jesus out of the hands of, of Christian missionaries. But uh, it's not surprising also that he took on messianic characteristics. He believed that uh, the religion of Islam needed to be radically re- reformed in order to deal with, uh, with British imperialism and most especially with uh, Christian missionary activity in India at that time. So these uh, particular appearances are loci for, uh, for new movements. The Ahmadiyya eventually uh, are rejected by mainstream Islam because uh, of the claims of, of Ghulam Ahmad to have been Jesus, which is considered to be blasphemous in Islam. He also considered himself to be a prophet, uh, which is totally rejected inside, uh, inside Islam. And so eventually the Ahmadiyya by the 1970s is more or less pushed out of uh, the Muslim community. So it's very interesting to note that, uh, that you find these, uh, these different messianic movements that uh, that will appear and then actually morph into new religions. Um, and that was also characteristic of the beginnings of the Baha'i religion, uh, which was closely tied not to uh, the Hijri calendar, but actually to 1,000 years after the time of the occultation of the 12th Imam, which happened in the, uh, in the 1840s. And so at that particular time, then uh, the the Bob, uh, the new um, figure, the avatar for the Baha'i religion, uh, appeared and um, and made a proclamation of himself as the Mahdi. This was rejected by most Iranians uh, quite violently, and then gradually the the religion then morphed into entirely a new uh, belief system. Now during our own time. Uh, the most important apocalyptic movements have happened uh, during that year of 1978-79, which was the uh, the Muslim year 1400. Um, during that year, uh, one finds uh, so many different apocalyptic movements, it's really hard to know where to start. Um, but the easiest one to characterize is that of Juhayman uh, Al-Utaibi, uh, who was a Saudi Arabian, um, and who had been a, a radical activist in the Saudi Arabian kingdom who believed that the kingdom had been taken over and over-influenced by Western and non-Muslim ideals. And so fortunately, a great many of his writings have survived and were smuggled out after his, uh, his death. But uh, he believed that the Mahdi should be proclaimed um, in the Holy Mosque of Mecca, and so he decided that he would do that actually during uh, the holy month of Ramadan. Um, and that it was actually his brother-in-law, Muhammad al-Kahtani, uh, who actually ironically held the name of one of the uh, minor messianic characters, who would be proclaimed uh, to be the Mahdi at that particular time. 
And so several hundred of his followers managed to take over the Holy Mosque uh, then, in November of 1979. And it it took uh, the Saudi Arabian government almost a month to be able to get rid of them. And actually, they had to draft uh, a a, a number of French uh, paratroopers from a a crack uh, French uh, anti-terrorist group and hastily convert them to Islam (laughs) Uh, in order to send them to fight uh, Juhayman al-Utaibi and his group that had taken over the uh, the mosque. And in the end, uh, they actually just had to use poison gas against them. So this is a, a, a very powerful and potent belief system that has the, the, the power to, to draw large numbers to it. The Saudi Arabian government is petrified even to this day about the ideology that uh, that led Utaibi and his group to take over the mosque. But this is hardly the only uh, apocalyptic event that happened during that year. Um, those of you who know history uh, will recognize 1978-79 as the year of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Uh, definitely the Imam Khomeini used extensive uh, apocalyptic imagery in order to communicate uh, his message. And there can be no reasonable doubt that many were influenced by the ideal of establishing some sort of a, of an Islamic state during that crucial year uh, in Iran and that would probably come to influence uh, the entire world. There were apocalyptic movements in Indonesia There was an apocalyptic appearance uh, in Afghanistan, where at that particular time, the Soviet Union had just invaded uh, and uh, and was just the beginning of the uh, uh, of the revolt and rejection of communist rule and uh, the beginnings of the Mujahideen movement against uh, uh, that would against them that would ultimately lead to uh, their expulsion 10 years later. Uh, another very important movement that happened at that particular time was the Mai Tatsine movement uh, in uh, Nigeria, where you found that uh, that a, a radical leader had incited large numbers of, of his followers to violence in the northern section of Nigeria. This radical leader continued until he had to face the uh, face the Nigerian army during that self-same time, and uh, was ultimately defeated. But his, his followers have continued to actually cause problems in various different times, and actually uh, the last of them was only rounded up a couple of years ago. So all in all, the year 1400 uh, has, uh, was promised to be something of a, of, of a turning in history, and one can easily see the reasons why when you look at the, uh, at the Muslim apocalyptic uh, timeline. The fact is, is if you believe that the, that, the, that the year of 1500 is going to be the end of the world, then you must believe that a number of different events are due to happen during that period leading up to it. In other words, the Mahdi has to appear, the Dajjal has to appear, wide range of other different cataclysmic events have to appear prior to the year 1500. And therefore, that, that, that space of time between 1400 and 1500, in other words, 
879 to, uh, to 2076 must be filled to a large extent if you take the, the apocalyptic prophecies seriously, with a whole bunch of uh, different cataclysmic events. There, the beginnings of the signs should be happening. The, the appearance of the Mahdi, the appearance of the Dajjal, all these different things should be, should be happening. And therefore, uh, it's not surprising that uh, you found uh, at that particular time Muslims responding very strongly to, uh, to the, um, uh, the present day. Um, in Iraq today, uh, we find, uh, we find the, the movement of the, uh, of the soldiers of heaven, the Junda Sama, very interesting group that has appeared, uh, repeatedly in 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, and is of an ecumenical basis. In other words, it seeks to bridge the gap between Sunnis and Shiites in a very violent way. And the way it, it chooses to do that is to actually attack elites. Um, one can sense very strongly from reading uh, Muslim apocalyptic literature the hatred of uh, Muslim apocalyptists for elites. In other words, it, it, usually elites are portrayed as being of negative value for Muslims. They oftentimes have betrayed Muslims. They are corrupt they uh, they are too over luxurious, and so one of the first activities that the Mahdi engages in traditionally is actually to kill the ulama, and the other one that he does, not surprisingly, once one reads the uh, the materials, is to de- destroy all the mosques. And so when the when the Junda Sama first appeared, it was amazing how much they had uh, they had decided to f- try and fulfill these prophecies. Basically, their plan was to try and kill off all of the religious elite of both Sunnis and Shiites in, uh, in Iraq, and then to destroy all the mosques. It sounds rather antinomian, uh, almost, or, uh, or nihilistic when you read about it, but it, it makes sense in kind of a bizarre way, because if you're living inside that civil war state of Iraq in 2006, and you read the apocalyptic prophecies, and then you look around you, and you realize the extent to which violence is being incited by both religious elites, uh, it would make sense to actually try and refound a, 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 a state that would encompass both Sunnis and Shiites, a sort of messianic state, by first of all getting rid of the entire previous order. So while uh, the Jindus Samah is undoubtedly a very violent group, and uh, rightly it's been fought by both Americans and uh, by Iraqi sh- soldiers, it represents actually a, a, a sincere continuation of the apocalyptic tradition of Islam. So in summary, uh, the relationship between apocalyptic predictions and apocalyptic movements is problematic. Um, one should not say that the apocalyptic predictions are actually some sort of blueprint by which a movement can actually achieve power. They are dynamic and dangerous, and most of them do not appear in the canonical traditions. There's very, very little material about the Mahdi, for example, in any of the canonical traditions. Um, but 
they are not actually blueprints and you cannot find exact parallels between the rise of a given Mahdi and the sort of material that you find in the in the Hadith literature, even though it might have certain certain affinities with it. It won't ever be exact. And so the material is, is problematic. It's probably best seen as being, uh, being a type of group of slogans. In other words, the catchwords, the slogans, in other words, the Mahdi will bring righteousness, he will bring justice, and so forth. Those are the things that are actually on the tips of everybody's tongues. The other, uh, the other descriptions, the other historical descriptions about how the Mahdi will assume power are uh, presumably in order to demonstrate that it is possible to assume power in this manner and to, uh, and to give the people a sense of hope where previously they would only be able to see uh, governmental forces on a continual basis uh, suppressing any sort of uh, revolt or any sort of, um, any sort of opposition. So the usage of the apocalyptic prophecies is at best spotty. Um, what you find is, is that apocalyptic movements use those slogans but they cannot be bound by them. They will uh, try and modify them to the best of their ability and sometimes put out prophecies of their own, uh, even to our own day, which we'll discuss in the last section of this, uh, of this discussion. Thank you.